If you're here over the Easter season, you know that we were giving out copies of this little booklet called The Story of His Glory, which shares the good news of the gospel of Christ throughout uh, the biblical story. Um, if you have someone in your life that you would like to share this with, uh, feel free to take a copy and give it to them. Uh, we have a limited number, so don't take a whole bunch, but uh, take some to give to a friend or family member if God puts someone on your heart. On uh, the internet, there is this new thing called the Twitter. And the Twitter is this website where people will post stories about what's going on in their life. They'll post pictures. They'll post opinions and thoughts. And people will follow these people on the Twitter. And so um, I was curious this week. I know it's called Twitter, not the Twitter. I'm just being funny. But uh, on, I was curious who has the most followers on Twitter. And uh, honestly, it surprised me because uh, I didn't know some of these people. But um, number five with 83 million followers is Taylor Swift, who used to be a country singer, and I remember her from that. Uh, number four with 88 million followers is Rihanna, uh, who I know is popular among you kiddos, but I could not tell you a single song that she sings. Uh, number three is Barack Obama, our former president, with 102 million followers. Number two is Justin Bieber, who I didn't even realize was still popular, at 104 million followers. And the number one uh, person being followed on Twitter uh, is Katy Perry, uh, 107 million followers. Again, I could not share with you a single song that she sings, but... Um, you'll be happy to know that Jacob's Well does have a Twitter account as well, and we have 21 followers, not 2,100, just 21 <laughs> followers, and so uh, I'm curious, are any of you here followers of Jacob's Well on Twitter? No. Okay. All right. They are all, my mom signed up 21 times. That's great. <laughs> to follow someone can mean a lot of different things. Uh, for example, uh, if you are following someone, you may be a stalker and you should be thrown in prison, right? Uh, if you are a follower of someone, maybe you are a private detective and you're trying to understand the truth about a person's life. It, it, on social media, Twitter or Facebook, to follow someone is to follow their stories, their thoughts, their life. Today, Jesus calls us to follow him. What does it mean to follow Jesus? You see, in all of these other situations, to follow a person really means to have no relationship with them. But Jesus, in the context of relationship, calls you and me to follow him. And so we have this question of how do we follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And that's what we're going to look at today. Now, before we get today's passage, we're actually going to look at two passages before that. And so if you would first, please open up to Matthew chapter 4. It's page 809 in the Red Bible, uh, 962 in the Blue Bible, and 1023 in uh, the Children's Bible. These two passages that we're going to look at before our primary passage today uh, are, are, are the same story. One is more developed than the other, but they mirror the passage that we're going to look at today for our principal passage. Uh, our principal passage comes after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These passages actually start at the beginning of Jesus's ministry when he's first calling his apostles. So first, Matthew 4, 18 says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, 
Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, if you would flip to Luke chapter 5, it's page 860 in the Red Bible. And again, this is an expanded uh, telling of the exact same historical event that we just read in Matthew 4. But Luke chapter 5, page 860 in the Red Bible. We'll read verses 1 through 11. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genseret, also known as the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. They were done for the day. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Jesus asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, if you would turn to John chapter 21, page 907 in the Red Bible. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 14 today, but I will just back up two verses into John 20, verse 30, to make sure we have the context of what's going on. So John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, 
It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word that you have given to us. Thank you for the reminder that you come near to us. Lord, as we study this passage, pray that you would remind us of what it means not only to believe unto you, but to follow you this day, tomorrow, and forevermore. Help us, we pray through your word, to make us closer followers of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. The last two weeks, we looked at Jesus' command to Thomas to not disbelieve, but believe. And so if you're here and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, believing that Jesus died and rose again on the third day, if you, like Thomas, confess that Jesus is your Lord and your God, then the next logical question is, how do I follow Jesus? If I believe in Jesus, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? You know, on the one hand, I think all of us hate following other people. I know I do. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do, and I'm pretty sure I know how to do it better than they do. And yet, on the other hand, all of us were made to be followers. All of us follow someone or something. Maybe we follow people on social media. Maybe we follow people in our workplace. Maybe we follow people's ideas and thoughts that, that are communicated to us. But all of us follow someone or someones. And it shapes our view of the world, our beliefs, our practices, our worldview, even our understanding of God and morality. And yet Jesus comes on the scene and he says to his apostles, follow me. And so the question is not if you will follow someone, but who will you follow? Over the next three weeks, we will rediscover why there is no one better to follow than the Lord Jesus. And with this in mind, I want to focus again on this one question. How do we follow Jesus? If we profess to be believers in Jesus, how do we follow him? Now, the list by no means is exhaustive, but I think it is very crucial in our faithful following of Jesus Christ today, tomorrow, and for the rest of our lives. So the first way that we follow Jesus is by fishing for Jesus. 
okay? Jesus' ministry to the apostles is bookended by these two almost identical stories, right? The apostles, or some of them, go out to fish at night. They come back. They've caught nothing. Jesus sends them back out. Jesus says, cast your nets here, and they catch a miraculous amount of fish, and they come back, and they're astounded by the miraculous catch of fish. And so we see this at the beginning and at the end, and Jesus, in both cases, says, follow me afterwards, And so I think there is a connection between these two stories that we can draw. I mean, we have to be careful not to over-symbolize the scriptures and say everything means something. But I think because of the similarities of these two stories, there are some connections we can make between the two that will help us understand what's going on in John chapter 21. And so let's look at verse 1 again. Starts, after this, after the resurrection of Christ, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, also the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. So it's setting up for the story that is to come. But it's interesting because the apostles, if you remember, they were in Jerusalem when Jesus appeared to them. But now they've gone back to Galilee. And the reason why they've gone back to Galilee is probably for two reasons. The first reason is that's where they were from. That's where they had gainful employment, being fishermen. And so they went back so that they could feed themselves and their family. But the second reason why they went back to Galilee is because Jesus told them that's where he was going to meet them. In Matthew 26, at the Passover meal, Jesus says after he raises from the dead that he will go before them in Galilee. In Matthew 28, an angel at the empty tomb says he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. And then later in Matthew 28, the resurrected Jesus himself says, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. And so they go to Galilee. They start working and waiting for Jesus to come to them. Verse 2. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But, the night, but that night they caught nothing. So the... The apostles, they were going out to fish, uh, not for a leisurely fishing trip like we might do during the day, but they were going during the night. And the reason why they would go during the night is because they didn't have the convenience of refrigeration. And so they would bring their fresh catch to the market in the morning so that people could purchase it and eat it that day. But they go out to, to go fishing, to earn some money, to feed their bellies, and they catch absolutely nothing. So you can imagine how discouraged these professional fishermen are. They come home and and they're tired and they're hungry and they're broke. And they have nothing to eat. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now... They were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. I love this passage. I love, I love the questions that Jesus asks. Jesus knows they don't have any fish. He's the resurrected Lord. He knows all things. He knows that they don't have any fish. And yet he says to them, hey, do you guys have any fish? Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus ask this question? Is he mocking them? Is he belittling them? Is he just trying to show them how bad a fisherman they are and how great a fisherman he is? 
The apostles' profitless night of fishing was not merely a bad strategy, but it was the sovereign plan of God to teach the apostles and us something extremely important. That apart from Jesus, we are profitless fishermen. We are completely unable to catch any fish at all. You see, fishing and the catching of fish is an analogy that Jesus uses himself of evangelism. He says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. This is what Jesus says. But these apostles and us, apart from Jesus, can catch nothing, no matter how persuasive we are, no how many arguments we have in line, no matter how convincing our statements are. It is impossible for us to change the hearts of men. It is impossible for us to convince anyone of their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. But then we see what happens when Jesus joins the fishing trip. Look down at verse 11. It says, So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them, probably a record-breaking number. That's why they record it here. And then it says, And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Why does it tell us that the net was not torn? Again, I may be over-symbolizing this passage, okay? I realize that. But an untorn net means that none of the fish were lost. It means none of the fish were escaping, that their destiny was decided. Now, for fish, this is bad news, a decided destiny, right? Because they're going to go and be cooked up and eaten. But for people, this is great news, to have a decided and secure destiny, you see, I may be over-symbolizing that unbroken net a little bit, but the scriptures tell us that this is true. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then Romans 8, that beautiful passage, says neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The net of God's salvation cannot be torn by sin, by Satan, or even by death. But back to the main point. Well, we are called to be fishers of men for the sake of Jesus. Our efforts are in vain if Jesus does not go fishing with us. A uh, couple months ago, last, the end of last year, we had a new family that came to church and, um, and he was big into fishing. And, and one night he came to pick up his daughters from youth group. His name's Jesse. And my son Corbin saw the fishing gear on him. He had a fishing hat and fishing sweatshirt. And he got so excited. Uh, you see, my son Corbin loves fishing. Uh, I don't like fishing so much because when I go fishing, I never catch any fish. Like going boating and going fishing is the exact same thing except I'm holding a pole. I never catch any fish. Uh, and I've told my children the reason why I don't catch any fish is because fish are scared of attractive people. And that's why they all swim away. At least that's the way I, I make myself feel better. But anyways, my son Corbin sees, sees Jesse, and he gets excited, and he starts talking about fishing. And, and he says, hey, you know, maybe sometime we could go fishing because, you know, my dad doesn't really take me fishing a whole lot. He doesn't really like fishing. 
And so Jesse, Jesse hears that. He's thinking, yeah, that would be a good idea. And then he goes to some other people in the church, uh, the buyers, Bree and Jim. And, and he's like, yeah, I met this kid after youth group. And he was just really excited about fishing. He saw everything I said. And he said, I should take him fishing sometime. He said, my dad really doesn't take me fishing. And he's like, I don't know, like maybe he has a deadbeat dad or like, Maybe his dad's just like negligent or doesn't hang out with him or doesn't love him or care for him or something. And, and so they were like, well, what's, what's the kid's name? And they said, oh, his name's Corbin. And they're like, oh, that's Pastor Dan's son. <laughs> the point is I am, I am horrible at fishing. I'm horrible at fishing. And so I've, I've adopted a new strategy for fishing. I take someone who knows how to fish with me. And so, so earlier this year, I took my, my boys out uh, on Fox River. We went fishing, caught absolutely nothing, even though there were people around us catching fish. Later, said, hey, Jesse, can we go fishing with you? Sure, come on. So we go fishing, and we catch fish. And then we go with my friend Dan from my softball team. We go up, and we catch so many fish, we can't even remember how many fish we caught. I stink at fishing. I needed someone to come and fish with us. Jesus is reminding his apostles and us here, that we can catch no fish, not because we are too handsome, but because we are completely incapable to make deaf ears hear the gospel. Because we are completely incapable of making blind eyes see the beauty of Jesus. Because we are completely incapable to make dead people come alive. And so Jesus gives us a great commission to fulfill, to go and be fishers of men and women. And yet it is a commission that we cannot fulfill. That is completely impossible. But Jesus gives us the great promise that when we go fishing, we never fish alone. But we are fishing with the fisher king, Jesus Christ. In the great commission, Jesus again says, go make disciples of all nations. How do we do this impossible command? Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is so assuring for me because there are so many sermons that I preach that I think, oh man, I'm so glad that is over. It was such a dud. And yet, invariably that week, someone will email me, that was such a powerful sermon. I'm like, I'm glad it was for you. (laughs) Friends, if you want to follow Jesus, don't wait until you have a polished, precise evangelism presentation cast your line whatever sea God has you in, whether it be your workplace or your neighborhood or, or your sports teams or wherever God has you, cast, cast and fish for men because you do not go alone. The fisher king promises to go with you. And so if we believe in Jesus, how do we follow Jesus? Well, we go fishing for men, for Jesus and with Jesus. Secondly, we follow Jesus by fleeing to Jesus. Look at verse six with me. Jesus said to them, cast the nets on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, talking about John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put out on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The outer disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish so they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. 
The apostle John, who is uh, the one that Jesus loves, seems to get things quicker than the rest of the apostles. I don't know if you remember, uh, just back in John chapter 20, John and Peter go to the empty grave, and they see how the grave clothes have been laid, and John gets it. John, John believes the scriptures that Christ is raised from the dead. Peter is a bit slower to do that, and so are the rest of the apostles. But John, John connects the dots quickly. We see that here in this passage as well. He says, okay, wait a minute, where have I seen this before? Where have I seen this where we've gone out fishing, we've caught absolutely nothing, some stranger says, hey, cast your nets again, and we catch a huge load of fish. I know, it's Jesus. And so he proclaims, it is the Lord. And Peter responds very impulsively as Peter always does. And yet he does so in such a strange way. I don't know if you caught it. Look at verse seven with me, the second half. It says, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Peter was stripped for work, meaning he was probably wearing nothing but his skivvies for work. It was a hot day, maybe. And yet, why would he put on a robe to jump into the water? I mean, that makes no sense, right? I mean, it's going to weigh you down, right? And it's going to get it wet, so it's not going to be dry for you when you reach the land. It, it makes, what would make sense is if you're fully clothed and you strip down to your skivvies to jump in, right? But here, Peter puts on the outer garment. And the question, again, is why? And as we look through the scripture, what we see in the Bible is that since the fall of mankind, nakedness has always been a symbol of shame. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked and without shame. But after the fall, Adam and Eve covered up their nakedness because they were ashamed of their sin. And God came and pursued them in the garden and they hid. And God asked them, who told you that you were naked? And they were ashamed of what they had done. Hebrews 4 says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. This is a terrifying thought. That all of us will stand completely exposed. Morally, our thought life, our, our, our passions, it will, we will stand completely exposed before a holy God who we have to give an account to. Simon denied being a follower of Jesus on three occasions. He was ashamed of his denial and his betrayal. And so he covers his shame and he jumps into the water because Simon is learning that the gospel is true. Simon believes the gospel because he jumps into the water, but he's learning that it's true because he comes, he covers up his shame. He jumps in and goes to Jesus because he is certain that Jesus still loves him. And that Jesus will receive him. And then the other apostles come dragging the fish behind. You know, this response from Peter in, in this passage is far different than his response in the, in the previous passage. When, when, when Jesus called him to be his apostle three years earlier. I don't know if you remember how Peter responded at that first miraculous catch of fish. But in Luke 5, you don't need to turn there. In Luke 5 it says, And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And so the first time Jesus works the miraculous catch of fish, Simon says, Flee away from me. Go away from me. I am unclean. I am unworthy. I am a sinful man. 
And yet here through the power of the resurrection, instead of fleeing from Jesus and his shame, he now flees to Jesus with his shame. Peter was learning again the good news of the gospel, pressing it deep into his heart, running to Jesus despite his sin. Maybe you're here today and you think this calling to flee to Jesus is just for non-Christians. And it certainly is, but not in this passage. Peter was a believer who jumped into the water to flee to Jesus. When is the last time you have jumped in the water to flee to Jesus? What, what sin or shame is keeping you from fleeing to Jesus? You know, this past week I talked to one of my old college friends who I haven't talked to in 20 years. He lives in Scotland. He's a Christian. He's a, he's a counselor there, which makes it very interesting for him to be a Christian. It's about 2% Christian or less uh, in Scotland. And he reminded me of something that I heard before, but it struck him again. He said, the deepest longing of the human heart is to be fully known and fully loved. To stand spiritually, emotionally, morally naked before another and to not only be accepted, but to be cherished. And then he reminded me, this is only found in Christianity. This is only found in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus knows everything about you. He knows all of your sin, all of your shame. And yet Jesus cherishes you and loves you and delights in you and rejoices over you with singing. Maybe you're here today and you know that Jesus loves you, but you are not so sure that Jesus likes you because you're overcome with the shame of your sin. Flee to Jesus. Don't push him away. Flee to Jesus with all of your baggage with all of your failures, with all of your sin. Flee to Jesus. In the morning, in the evening, in the winter, during the summer, flee to Jesus. So if we believe in Jesus, how do we follow Jesus? We go fishing for men with Jesus. We flee to Jesus even in our sin, even in our shame because he knows it all anyways and he stands ready to receive you. Finally, we fellowship with Jesus. Verse 9 says, when they got out of the boat, got, excuse me, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Let me pause here again for a second. John notes here in this verse that when they got out of the boat onto the land, there was a charcoal fire. And, and, and charcoal, I don't know if you know, I, I, my neighbor had a charcoal fire and it has certain smells, you know, certain sights, certain memories attached to it. For me, very good memories of cooking out with the family and things like that. But, but John specifies that there's a charcoal fire here for a very specific purpose. You see, this word charcoal only appears one other place in the whole New Testament. And it's a few chapters earlier in John chapter 18. And just before that time, Peter had pledged his devotion to Jesus. Jesus said that the shepherd's going to be struck and, and the sheep will all scatter. And Peter says, I will never, I will never leave you even if I must die. But then Jesus is arrested and he's taken into custody and John and Peter slip into this court area where Jesus is being prosecuted by the Jews. And we're told that in that court, there is a charcoal fire where people are warming themselves. 
And, and when they are coming into this court, this super scary, intimidating, ferocious, tiny little servant girl asks Peter, are you one of Jesus' disciples? And Peter, making his first denial, says, I am not. Have you ever had certain images or places or symbols or smells that remind you of your rebellion against God? Uh, of a life of, of sin, of a life of, of being out of communion with God. This is what charcoal is for Peter. And yet Peter steps onto the land and Jesus takes this symbol of sin and of shame and redeems it as a means of grace and fellowship with Peter. Verse 10 says, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. I love how he says that you have just caught. I mean... Okay, we can say they caught the fish, but we know Jesus did it. Verse 11, so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. This invitation from Jesus to come and have breakfast is more than just filling their hungry bellies. This is an invitation to fellowship, to communion with one another, to intimacy. This is the reason why Greeks and, and where Jews and Gentiles didn't eat together because it was an intimate gathering together. I mean, we, we have trouble understanding this in our culture today. I know for me, my family just, uh, I think it was on Thursday, I said, you know what, we, we eat dinner too fast. You know, we need to sit together and just be together and enjoy one another. So I'm going to set the timer for 20 minutes. So I said, Alexa, set timer for 20 minutes. And we pray and we start eating and we get done eating. I mean, we're talking, we're having a good time and we're out of things to talk about. And I'm like, and so one of the kids says, Alexa, how much time left? And Alexa says, there are 13 minutes remaining. We're like, really? There's 13 minutes left? Because we're so used to eating dinner so fast and moving on with the day. But one of the things I appreciate about Wisconsin is you guys understand how, how eating together can be a process. Something, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. Something I've never heard of before in my life is supper clubs, okay? And when we got here, we got a gift to a supper club. I think it was Wally Spot. And we go there and we're thinking, okay, this is going to be a 30-minute dinner. No, it's like a three-hour dinner. It's a place where people come and gather and they enjoy the food and they enjoy one another. And it's, it's a huge ordeal. It's a marathon. It's a, it's a place of intimacy and of communion with these other people. This is what Jesus was doing here. This isn't McDonald's. This is a supper club. And Jesus is saying, come and be intimate with me and fellowship with me. Let us commune with one another. It continues and says, now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead, at least as recorded in the Gospel of John. You know, how amazing would it be to dine with the Lord Jesus? I mean, if you were at that breakfast with Jesus, what would you ask him? What would, you, what would you want from him? Maybe you would just sit in his glory and hear what he has to say. Maybe there's very specific things you wonder that you would want to ask him. I've shared this story before, but several years ago, I went to a small pastor's conference. There was probably 40 or 50 pastors. It was somewhere out west. I can't remember exactly where. 
and, uh, and it was a three-day conference. And on the second night, I went to go get dinner, and I was running a little bit late, but I went to the buffet, I got my food, and I found a table with an open seat. And, you know, half the, it was a round table, so half the people's backs were turned to me. I couldn't see who was there, but I went, and I, and I sat down at the open seat, and the gentleman next to me uh, looked over at me and said, hi, I'm Lig. And he stuck out his hand to shake my hand, and he saw my name tag. is, oh, yes, Dan Jackson from Green Bay, Wisconsin. How are you doing? And at that point, I realized that this man, Lig, was a pastor whose name is Ligon Duncan. Uh, you may not know who Ligon Duncan is, but Ligon Duncan preaches to tens and thousands of pastors every year. He r- runs a seminary. Uh, he's one of my heroes in the faith because he's not flashy if you've ever listened to him, but he is faithful and he loves Jesus. And so here I am sitting next to Ligon Duncan. I did something which I, I never do. I used my napkin because I'm sitting next to Ligon Duncan, right? And I'm sitting there and I'm eating and I'm talking to Ligon Duncan and how wonderful is this? And so I'm just hanging out there with Ligon Duncan. I mean, we get to come week after week after week and dine with Jesus, who is so much greater than Ligon Duncan or any other celebrity, Katy Perry or whoever was at the top. He's the best. You know, people will say, why do you celebrate communion weekly? And I will often say, because I need so much grace. But I would now add to that, because we get to come and dine with Jesus. Why would we pass it up? We get to come in fellowship with our Lord. John writes more about our fellowship with God in another letter later. 1 John 1, 3 says, verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard, talking about Jesus Christ, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so as we come to the table, we fellowship with Jesus and with one another. We, we can fellowship with Jesus in many ways. We call these things the means of grace, the, the ways that God has given to us to fellowship and to commune with him through the preaching and study of his word, through prayer and talking to the Father, through gathering with God's people in corporate worship on Sunday and through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper when received by faith. You see, as I mentioned last week, in the Lord's Supper, we do not believe that Jesus is physically present in the elements because Jesus is bodily raised from the dead and sitting in heaven. But we do believe that Jesus is spiritually present in these elements. It is more than just a remembrance because Paul warns us that those who eat and drink in an unworthy manner eat and drink judgment on themselves. And so there is some sort of power in these elements. Christ is spiritually present. And when we receive it by faith, just as we receive the preached word by faith, it nourishes us and we commune with the living God. And so like the apostles, all who flee to Jesus get this invitation from our Savior, come and eat, come and fellowship with Christ. Let me end with this. There's a story of a young woman who applied for a college and as she went through the application, her heart sank because one of the questions on the application was simply this. Are you a leader? Being honest, she wrote no, and then returned the application expecting to be declined. Much to her surprise, she received a letter back from the college, and it said this, Dear applicant, a study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. 
We are accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. <laughs> if you look at, up the term lead in the Gospels, it is almost always a negative connotation. It's talking about false teachers and blind guides that are leading people into self-destruction, leading them into pits. In this sense, leading is a negative thing because these people forgot that before you are a leader, you have to be a follower. To be a great leader, you must be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. For it was Christ himself, our great leader, who followed the will of the Father by coming into the sea of humanity to fish out men and women for salvation. It was our great leader who was following the will of God that fled to the cross to take on our sin and rebellion and then rose from the dead so that we could enter into fellowship with a holy God for all eternity. You know, many of us are called to be leaders in some capacity, in our homes, in our church, in our schools, in our workplaces, in the community, we are called to be leaders. But if you want to be a great leader, you must first understand your primary obligation to be a follower, a follower of the Lord Jesus, fishing for Jesus, with Jesus, fleeing to Jesus time and time and time again, in fellowshipping with Jesus day in and day out for the rest of your life. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that through your word this Sunday and the next two Sundays that we would draw near, that we would come to you time and again, that we would remember that we are not primarily leaders, but we are followers followers of our Savior. May we follow you closely and attentively. As we turn to your table, we praise you that you have called us to come and to eat with you, to dine with you, to fellowship with you spiritually at this table. May we receive these elements with, with awe and wonder that our holy God would want to commune with us, that our holy God would want to fellowship with us. And may we take it with the great joy that through you we get to fellowship with one another here in the church and commune with one another in a mysterious and glorious way through your Holy Spirit. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, Drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, if you are here today and you believe in Jesus and you are a follower of Jesus, this is for you to remind you that he, is, he stands with open arms to receive you time and time again into fellowship with him. If you're here today and you don't trust in Christ for your salvation, we're so glad you are here. We pray that you would believe in Jesus and follow Jesus because he is the greatest one to follow in all the world. But we ask that you not take of these elements today, that you would be true to yourself and true to God and wait until that day that you truly trust in Christ for your salvation. We'll have several ushers set up throughout the sanctuary. When you're ready, please go take the elements, bring it back to your seat, and we'll partake together as the body of Jesus Christ.